Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to continue our reflections into the great ancient Christian thinkers. And we really are now beginning to phase out of that more classical sense of how we think about church fathers. Out from St. Gregory the Great, we really do begin to move into some lesser-known figures, but all the while (laughs) very important figures. And as we have been working through Benedict XVI's work and his uh, series, catechetical series on the Church Fathers, we will continue to do so. So ultimately, while this program has been about uh, primitive Christianity and, and the early Church, we do move through history, and we will arrive at a point where we're talking about some contemporary theologians, some, some contemporary popes, as they've contributed to uh, the intellectual life and thought of the Catholic faith. And so with our saint this evening, Saint Columban, We now begin that journey of talking about, again, lesser-known figures, but all the while still very important. Now, that being said, St. Columban, huh? St. Columban. Other than St. Patrick himself, this holy abbot is probably the most recognizable Irish saint. His contributions to Western monasticism is second only to St. Benedict. And so we can well imagine the kind of role he had in the development of Western Europe. He not only gives us a rule for the ideal monk, that for a time was even more popular than Benedict's rule, but something else emerges from his life that I find most fascinating. And that is how his role evolved to contribute to how we think about the sacrament of confession today, and the need to frequently go to confession, but also how we view spiritual direction. So this evening, we'll really be focused on those two aspects, his life, uh, his impact upon Western monasticism, and certainly, again, uh, we will consider the sacrament of confession, his role in its development, and with that, we'll, we'll consider its biblical roots. I will do all of this solo uh, today. John O'Hare was unable to join me, uh, neither was George Wing, so this is a rare occasion, flying solo on Tuesday, but Uh, Nonetheless, much to talk about, much to reflect, so uh, let us engage. What do we know about this this, uh, holy abbot Columban? Well, he was born in approximately 543 in southeast Ireland. Uh, He was educated at home by excellent tutors who introduced him to the study of liberal arts, and this wasn't entirely unknown to to the, the country of Ireland then. After some early studies of the liberal arts, he was entrusted to the guidance of one Abbot Sennel, where he was able to deepen his study of sacred scripture. And as we have seen so much, what accompanies a deeper understanding of sacred scripture is that radical yes to the Christian journey of faith. And so it should come to no surprise that at the age of roughly 20 years old, he enters the monastic life not far from home where he would be influenced by a very famous abbot by the name of Abbot Kumgal, a man who 
had a widespread reputation of being devoted to the ascetic ideal of renunciation. Now, before I go any further, it is worth noting here, huh? at the age of 20, I mean, how often have we been talking about these great men who, at a very young age, give their fiat, give their let it be to me, give their yes to God? You know, there's a tendency today to think about age in a different way. Well, he's only 12, he's only 14, he's only 18. Well, in the early church, uh, what we find common in the lives of the saints is this radical yes. Certainly, St. Augustine gave his yes at the age of 33, and there are other saints that we have talked about that gave their yes to God, their radical yes to God later in life. But there are many, there are many in the early church who gave their fiat to God at a very young age. And we could also add to that, throughout church history, we have had many men and women who have given their lives to God at a very young age. And so we should be challenged by that a little bit. You know, we should challenge ourselves, and if we're parents, uh, challenge our children to be thinking about God, thinking about uh, who they are in light of their faith at a younger age. We don't have to wait till they're 21, 24, 29. It can all start when they're teenagers, even younger. You know, we have saints in our history that were saying yes to God at the age of 9, 10, and 11. You know, so um, important and, and worth noting. So, Columban, while in that first monastery, arguably, what is most important during this time is that Columban was taken by Abbot Kamgal's ascetic ideal of prayer, renunciation, and that feverish study of Scripture and the Church Fathers. And ultimately, it was Abbot Kamgal's example that influenced the conception of monasticism that developed in Columban over time, a monasticism that would subsequently spread over the course of his life and impact all of Western Europe. When he was approximately 50 years old, following the characteristically Irish ascetic ideal of making oneself a pilgrim for the sake of Christ, Columban left his island with 12 companions to engage in missionary work on the European continent. So we know him as an Irish saint, for sure. But he is also known as an Irish-European saint because of what he did for the whole European continent. And here we should bear in mind that the migration of people from the north and the east had caused whole areas previously Christianized to revert to paganism. And so it was around the year 590 that Columban and his small band of missionaries landed on the Breton coast, and upon arriving, he asked the king of the Franks in present-day France for a small piece of uncultivated land. And so they were given an ancient Roman fortress, totally ruined and abandoned and covered by forest, to be that land. And as we've already talked about before, these are monks, right? They embrace that totally ruined and abandoned forest, huh? So accustomed to a life of extreme hardship, in the span of a few months, the monks managed to build the first hermitage on the ruins. Thus, we can say their re-evangelization began in the first place through the witness of their lives. And with the new cultivation of the land, they also began a new cultivation of souls. The fame of those foreign religious who living on prayer and in great austerity, 
built houses and worked the land spread rapidly, attracting pilgrims and penitents alike. In particular, many young men asked to be accepted by the monastic community in order to live like them. This exemplary life, which was renewing the cultivation of the land and souls. What is going on here as we're talking about this? I mean, we ought to reflect upon being attracted to what is unique. You know, to blend in is boring. <laughs> I think we've talked about this within the context of evangelization before. To blend in is boring. The word holiness means to be set apart, right? To be set apart from what is boring. To be set apart is to embrace and embark upon that which is exciting, a great adventure. Many of these great men, St. Columban most notably, embarked upon that great adventure. This is what happens when you say yes to God. When you say yes to God, God is going to take you on a great adventure, an adventure for many of us that is, is unknown to us. We have our plans, but again, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, because he's, he's got something different for you tomorrow and the next day, a plan that you could have never dreamed of. And it's about being set apart. It's about understanding that in the end, it's doing the will of the Father and being set apart from the norm. This, again, is what these great men teach us. And so it was not long before the foundation of a second monastery was built in the town of Luxel. This monastery was to become the center of the traditional Irish monastic and missionary outreach on the European continent. And it was not soon thereafter that a third monastery was erected at Fontaine, an hour's walk further north. Now, Columban lived at Luxel for almost 20 years, and it was here that the saint wrote his rule for the ideal monk that, for a while, amazingly so, was more widespread in Europe than Benedict's rule. I mean, everything that we have discussed up to this point should sound familiar, huh? I mean, have we not already talked about the impact of the Benedictines bringing fertile agricultural land to places of vast swamps? Columban was one of those earliest figures who was instrumental in the transformation of Western Europe. He was one of those figures who was bringing a deeper sense of culture to a place that was very uncultured. All right. Now, off the top... I talked about the importance of how he contributed to the sacrament of confession. And so I want to speak to this a little bit. And before we get, though, to St. Columban's contributions to how we think about penance today and its practice, let us briefly consider the sacrament of confession and its biblical roots. It is a mark of the believer to believe that Christ has the power to forgive sins. Now, what is the Catholic understanding of this, particular to the sacrament of confession? Well, first, let me say that we believe what every other Christian believes, right? That it is always Christ who is forgiving sins. But we claim that Christ does it in and through the priest. Where does this come from in Scripture? Well, let us first start on the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus said, what to his disciples? Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Then our Lord does something curious. He shared with them the first priests of the new covenant, right? His own life and his own power. He says this. This is John 20, verses 22 to 23. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, it's interesting, the word forgiven. The Greek here is used elsewhere when speaking of Christ being the one who forgives. Right? That's important. So he was establishing them as priests to administer a sacrament, but also as judges to pronounce judgment upon the actions of believers. He thus gives them a power exceeding what had formerly belonged to the priests of Israel. The rabbis referred to this ancient priestly power in terms of, well, what? Binding and loosening, right? We see this in Scripture. And Jesus used those very words to describe what he was giving to his disciples. For the rabbis, to bind or loose meant to judge someone to be in communion with the chosen people or, or cut off from that group's life and worship. According to the rabbis, the priests had the power to reconcile and even to excommunicate. Jesus, though, and I think this is really important for us to understand, was not merely transferring authority. In bringing this old ancient office to its fulfillment, he was adding a new dimension. No longer would the authorities pass a sentence that was merely earthly. Since the church shares in the power of God incarnate, her power would extend as far as the power of God. We go to that passage in Matthew 18, 18, what we read. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Before the apostles could exercise this power over souls, they would need to hear sins confessed aloud or denounced publicly. Otherwise, they could not know what to bind or loose. So very important. We see the ministry of confession and reconciliation in Paul's writings, right? As well as John's epistles. If you go to 1 John 1, nine, what do we read? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. St. Paul makes the further clarification that confession is something you do with your mouth, just not with your heart and mind. Now, to whom then must we confess? To God, of course, but in the way he ordained through Jesus Christ to a priest. This is the Catholic understanding of confession, right? If you were to go to St. James, he takes up the matter of confession at the end of his discussion on the sacramental duties of the clergy. The term he uses for clergymen is the Greek presbyteroi, which literally means elders, but which is the root, of course, of the English word priest. He says this, if you were to go to James 5, Verses 14 to 16. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders, the presbyteroi, right, of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the prayer of faith will save the sick man. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, something important here, when you read this text from James, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, as Dr. Scott Hahn <laughs> likes to say, what it's there for. In this passage, James is clearly setting the practice of confession in connection with the priest's healing ministry. 
Why? Because priests are healers. We call upon them to anoint our bodies when we are ill. And therefore, even more eagerly, what does James remind us of? We go to them for the healing sacrament of forgiveness when our souls are sick with sin. Notice that here, St. James does not exhort his congregation to confess their sins to Jesus alone, nor does he tell them to confess their sins silently in their hearts. They may do all these things, and all to their credit, but they will not yet be faithful to the word of God preached by St. James, not until they confess their sins aloud to, quote-unquote, another, and specifically to a presbyter, a priest. The father figure is always in view. I think that's very important for us in our understanding, in our Catholic understanding of the sacrament of confession. Very important. So we can quote John 20, verses 20, 21 to 23. We can quote Matthew 18, 18, and we can talk about these, but it's very important to get into Paul as well as James to better understand the biblical roots to the sacrament of confession. That being said, like all the rites of the church, the sacrament of confession has changed its look and feel down through the centuries, adapting to the different needs and different moral climates of different cultures. But confession has always remained the same in essence. It has remained what Christ intended it to be, the continuation through all time of his ministry of forgiveness and healing. One of those elements, one of those stages, comes into play here with St. Columban. Why? Columban integrated his rule for the monk with a sort of penal code for the offenses committed by the monks. And while the punishments might be today somewhat surprising to our modern sensibility, this can be explained away by the mentality and environment of that time. But it was another famous work of his on penance that Columban introduced confession and private and frequent penance on the continent. It was known as a tariffed penance, huh? A tariffed penance because of the proportion established between the gravity of the sin and the type of penance imposed by the confessor. I mean, you can well imagine that with such confession, there would be a great need for counsel and advice to work through a growing awareness of repetitive sin. So we not only have this introduction or, or maybe this reinforcement of the importance of frequencing the sacrament of confession coming out from St. Columban's uh, works and the greater areas that he evangelized, but also a rise in spiritual direction because of this growing awareness of our sin. So today's understanding of spiritual direction in some ways has some of its roots in the works of St. Columban, and I believe this to be very important because what is spiritual direction all about? It is that examination of conscience, that deeper examination of conscience where we journey with another, okay, to better understand who we are and where we are going. And we need to be able to be challenged by one another. This is biblical. This is at the root of the gospel, huh? So, under the guidance of one who is trained up in Christian spirituality and the gospel truths, we are led to the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ. So, this is very important to our whole discussion, and why, for all intents and purposes, when I was reading about St. Columban, this very holy abbot, uh, this very holy monk, I wanted to talk about him, because there's something to be gained by what he has to say to us about the importance of 
once again engaging the sacrament of confession. He saw it as instrumental to the life of the monk, to be right with God as much as possible. So when we go to Mass, the, the, the Church prescribes us to go to confession at least twice a year and encourages actually once a month. Uh, in this once a month, this really comes out of the stuff of uh, St. Columban. Now, initially, what I'm talking about now was rejected by some of the local bishops, a suspicion uh, that ultimately became quite hostile. But Columban, being the, the man that he was, rebuked them, and he sought a counsel for a greater defense. So he wrote to Pope Boniface IV uh, just several years after he spoke with Pope Gregory the Great to defend uh, the Irish traditions which he had established, and th- they were defended. Now, the subsequent years would see this holy abbot entrenched in discussions with church officials and the royal court, and those discussions always weren't the most friendly. But in the end, Columban was a man who was revered by many. And towards the end of his life, upon arriving in Italy, Columban was greeted with a warm welcome at the Lombard Royal Court. We talked about that last week. And it was there where he continued his work, defending the church against, yes, that Arian heresy, as well as other schisms that were wanting to intrude upon uh, the daily life of the church. And he became very important. He entered authoritatively into uh, the discussion on Arianism. He entered authoritatively into the discussion on all church matters. And so we see him uh, as, a, as a giant, really. Uh, we don't call him the great, but he, he belongs in, in the discussion of those figures that we have been talking about over the last nine months. And finally, it was in roughly 613 that the king of Lombards allocated to him a plot of land in Babio and the Trebio Valley. There, Columban founded a new monastery, which would later become a cultural center, which some have said was on par with, of course, the famous monastery of St. Benedict, Monte Cassino. Here, he came to the end of his days, and as history notes, he died on November 23rd, 615 AD, and to this day, November 23rd is commemorated uh, on the Roman calendar. So, what was the central message of this great monk. You know, St. Columban's message is concentrated in a firm appeal to what? Conversion and detachment from earthly goods, with this constant view to the eternal inheritance, with his ascetic life and conduct free from compromise when he faced the corruption of the world. He is in many ways reminiscent of the great St. John the Baptist. His austerity, however, we must make note, it was never an end in itself, but merely the means to which to open himself freely to God's love and to correspond with his whole being to the gifts received from him, constantly restoring himself in the image of God. This is what we draw from a figure like that of St. Columban, because what we learn from him is that when you enter into that kind of ascetic ideal, when you enter into that kind of abandonment, reckless abandonment to God, we at the same time cultivate souls. It has an impact. St. Columban was a man of great culture. You know, he wrote 
poetry in Latin. He wrote a grammar book. He proved rich in gifts of grace. He was a tireless builder of monasteries, numbering up to 200 by St. Columban himself, as well as as an intransigent penitential preacher who spent every ounce of his energy on nurturing the Christian roots of Europe, which was coming into existence. A few weeks back, we talked about St. Benedict, and last week it was about St. Gregory the Great. St. Columban very much is of that ilk, that reckless abandonment to the ascetic ideal, this need to see one's whole life caught up in that aura et labor, prayer and work, so as to evangelize souls. This was, a, this was what was at the heart of St. Columban. And 1,400 years later, we can learn from this man. We can learn how, in fact, we can be better evangelizers, better catechists, better doers of the word. Huh? Very important to learn from where this man's energy came from. It's a great paradox of the Christian and Catholic faith when you think about it, that the less you have, the more you can give. But this is the paradox of the cross. This is the essence of Christianity. Less is more. Less is more. And when we enter into that, we enter into the dynamic of every saint. You know, just by way of postscript to this radio program this evening, it's important for us to take stock in how what we do impacts future generations. Maybe we have not emphasized this enough, but it is important to see how our actions today impact people tomorrow. And if we can see this for what it is and how it plays itself out, we can better appreciate that opening quote and that opening program of our whole series on the great ancient Christian thinkers, that that history is not some series of chronological events, but it is an event of freedom an event where we choose right versus wrong, the good versus the bad, okay? If we can begin to enter into the freedom that belongs to authentic Christian discipleship, we can impact future generations the same way these great saints have impacted us today, 1,400 years later. So in light of this, let us take up that challenge to see freedom not as an end in of itself, but a means to an end. Let us see uh, that accountability is an important virtue, a virtue that sees what we do today impacts what we do tomorrow, and ultimately all of those who we come into contact with. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.